So by removing the blue light and providing better shielding, and then only using the light when there's a lot of humans around, uh, you can actually reduce the amount of uh, impact on the environment considerably. And also by removing the glare that comes from poor shielding or limited shielding, um, you can now use much fainter lights as well. You don't, They don't have to be as bright. And not as bright translates into saving energy. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective addressing important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, Alan is destroying the night sky. Alan as in artificial light at night. I remember as a child in rural Ontario looking up at the night sky and seeing thousands of stars peeking out of a coal black sky. I've continued to pursue a lifetime of both professional and amateur astronomy as a result of that initial inspiration. But now, unshielded greenhouse lights in Essex County uh, have made it impossible for the current generation to look up with wonder. Everywhere, the awe of the night sky is being replaced with crass sideshow lighting. Light pollution seems to be an unavoidable fact of urban sprawl and modern development, robbing our children of their right to view this beautiful display of the universe. Through the ages, the grandeur of the night sky has been the inspiration of science, art, and poetry. The majority of children growing up today have never seen the true majesty of nature. It has disappeared behind the glow of wasted light. And it is easy to delight the night and bring back this natural vista for future generations. On this episode, I am welcoming... Lighting expert, Mr. Robert Dick, a fellow astronomy enthusiast and dark sky crusader. Rob is CEO of the Canadian Scotobiology Group. And if you enjoy this episode, please click like, uh, send a comment, and share to your friends. Welcome to The Rational View, Rob. Thanks very much, Alan. Could you tell me a little bit about your current work? Well, I split my time between my company, the Canadian Scotobiology Group, and the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's Dark Sky Preserve Program, and I also write uh, astronomy articles for Canada's Harold Smith Magazine. By the way, Canadian Scotobiology, the, the word Scotobiology is the study of the biological need for periods of darkness. And as you might imagine, based upon the, the topic of this interview, uh, it really grew out of my concern about light pollution. Very interesting. So what initially got you concerned about light pollution? How did you get interested in this topic? Well, I've been an amateur astronomer for well over 50 years now. I'm a gray hair. And we, growing up, a bunch of us from high school used to be out under the night sky, meteor observing. And then our ambitions got the best of us, and we decided in our group to, to to build a large telescope and site it somewhere. And so we built it. It was sited uh, south of Ottawa. And then after a few years, somebody bought the property right next door to it and put up a house within 100 feet or so of the observatory. Oh, no. And they liked to leave their outdoor lights on, and we had boisterous activity throughout the night any time of the week. We weren't very good neighbors. So it was decided since it was their home and this was our hobby, we decided to move. 
and we relocated west of Ottawa on uh, Mississippi Valley Conservation Authority property. Ottawa's in the in the eastern part of the sky, and the sky glow from Ottawa continued to rise up and contaminate uh, our nice dark skies that we had there. So we're figuring, gosh, we got to move again, but we couldn't afford to move. So some of us got together and figured we'd try to do something. And we had a, a confluence of, of, of good talent and uh, well-connected people. And we created a light pollution abatement program in Ottawa, and that proved to be relatively successful. This is going back to the, the mid-90s. I see. And so we, uh, we started with that, and uh, it proved, as I said, it proved to be relatively successful. Then I was asked to take it over nationally, and here I was expecting to retire from it back in the late 1990s, and then I took on the national program for the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and I've been going at it ever since. But what changed was in 2003, when I attended a conference in the Muskoka District, north of Toronto, and uh, <clears throat> there's about 80 to 100 people there, and only two of us had anything remotely to do with astronomy. And all the others were the biosciences, cognitive s stuff, mm -hmm. sociology, and so on. And that's when I found out that light pollution has very little to do with astronomy. It's got everything to do with, with uh, biology, ecological integrity, and even human health. So from our shared hobby of amateur astronomy... Uh, there's obviously this ongoing um, clash with uh, between a nice dark night sky and the need for security lighting that, that people see. Isn't this something that uh, people need to have, is the security lighting at night? That's what you would think. At least that's the way it's been, been marketed, if I can use that word for this. But light enables monitoring of, of activity, but it, it alone it doesn't provide security. The security depends upon three things. First, you have to detect a problem, or something has to detect a problem. And the second one is to report that there's a problem. And the third is to act on it. And unfortunately, all the light does is the very is is half of the first item, and that it enables you to see something happening, but it doesn't report it. Somebody has to report it, or a camera has to report it, and that report has to be then um, reviewed by someone or a machine that then sends out uh, a signal to send somebody there to, to stop it, or at least to take a look at it. So because it only lights the property, it really puts the property on display. Mm -hmm. And a vandal or, or, or a thief can come in, they can see everything outside your house, and then they just pick up what they want. And in the morning, the owner wakes up and finds their snowblower is gone or their, their, <laughs> their uh, lawnmower is gone. So it really doesn't do what it's purported to do, but it's necessary to do the f what comes next. It seems that it, it, it's something that gives people a sense of security to have these glaring lights at night even though you know most of the time they're not around. That's right. And, and in fact, the glaring lights can actually reduce visibility because you can imagine someone on the street or waiting at a stoplight, or sorry, waiting at a, a bus stop or something, and they're in a pool of light, and because it's so bright around them, they can't see into the shadows. And of course, that's where the criminal lurks. And there's no way to, uh, unless there's a security camera or someone with very good eyesight, because of the glare, uh, you can't see very well. You can't even identify the person very well. 
Now, you mentioned um, the effects on, on biology in animals, and this is something I didn't even know about. I mean, from, from our hobby, you know, we're, we're looking at the night sky, taking images of stars and deep sky, very faint objects, and, and this gets washed out. But apparently, you tell me that there is a, uh, a biological effect that, that this artificial light at night is actually hazardous for. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. As an amateur astronomer, we go out into the into the country. We set up telescopes because it's dark in the country, not very dark in the city. There's a lot of light out at life out at night. In fact, 60% of life on Earth is nocturnal. Light is part of the habitat, and when you add light, you change that habitat, and you change it so that the the predators have an advantage over the prey. So you have less prey, and because the predators are more successful. And oh. then the prey, uh, then the with the prey getting eaten up uh, for their dinners, of uh, the predators, then the predators disappear too. Then you have this unbalance um, in the ecosystem, and the ecosystem that's unbalanced, it's 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 not a healthy healthy way to be, a healthy environment. As amateur astronomers, I guess we're more interested in the physics than in the biology. And so when I went to this conference in two thousand and three. Uh, my eye was op- eyes were open to the impact on biology and biochemistry and behavior of animals. And again, that was pretty well a watershed of everything I've done for the following 17-odd years. That's very interesting. In fact, so I'm from um, southern Ontario, Essex County, actually. And there's a place there called a national park called Point Pelee which is a huge um, migratory stopover for, for migrating birds. And so all the bird watchers in the world come to this place to see because it's the narrowest hopover point uh, across the Great Lakes. So birds are funneled down through uh, southern Ontario and they hop across Lake Erie at this point. But now that area is just being overwhelmed by greenhouse development and there's all these unshielded greenhouse lights and the, and the sky is purple at night. Is that going to have a, an effect on all of these birds? That's a good question because there's conflicting reports on it, surprisingly. But if you drill down into the, the, the actual literature that they, they're based upon, the reports are based on, there are uh, there's some biases in who writes the report. I suppose if I wrote a report, my point of view would be biased as well. <laughs> but it depends what you're comparing and you can compare, for example, let's just use the, the idea of birds and these navigation avoidance beacons that are on towers. Mm-hmm. Um, the reports are that the white strobe beacons are don't impact the birds, whereas the red beacons did. But the red beacons are much easier on the eyes. But what they're using is historical data for the red beacons, and the red beacons used to be incandescent lights that that took time to heat up and then cool down. So they, they, it wasn't a strobe. It was more of a, a, a low-frequency flash. And as a driver, when you're going along, say, the 401 or the 417 or uh, highways in the country, if you, pa- you can pass by some of these, these, these towers that have the, the strobe lights on, and you notice there's a flash in the side of your eye um, off the distance, but it's hard to localize on it because it's so short. Whereas the red beacons, you could zero in on where the beacon is. 
And uh, so that, therefore, that got your attention. You knew where the beacon was. So if you were a bird, you say, oh, what's that? Then they, it knows the direction to fly to go to it. So that's why the red beacons tended to um, attract more birds, the interest of more birds. The white strobes, which are actually more disruptive to the environment, uh, the only reason they don't attract birds is because they're on such a short period of time and they can't localize on it. Hmm. So so what they decided was that, well, then white lights are fine because the birds aren't attracted by them. Well, that's not really true. So it's a matter of uh, reading even and even scientific papers and technical reports. Read them critically because um, if something isn't right with you, then chances are it's not right. Uh, it doesn't have to be rocket science to uh, to explain something. Usually things are, especially when it comes to biology and behavior, they're pretty straightforward. That's definitely uh, something that I would uh, also condone. Uh, and that's kind of one of the reasons that I'm doing this podcast is to help uh, open up the scientific research to the general public. So we've mentioned wildlife effects. Are there any health effects on, on people of, of light at night? I've heard the American Medical Association has put out a, a circular uh, describing the risks of, of blue light, for example. Yeah, it's a, that's a, it's, that starts to go down a rabbit's hole, but there's, um, there's a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of what is done now is based upon what we've been doing for 50 years, but the science has changed so quickly in the last two decades it's remarkable, but it seems to the the research seems to be pretty consistent and buttresses the idea that artificial light at night is not good for the environment or human health. And to put this in a more common sense um, form uh, context, genetically we're hunter gatherers, and anything that deviates from the hunter gatherer environment um, diet, for that matter, is probably not good for us. Well, as a hunter-gatherer, the only night light you might have had would be a fire. And fire emits very, very little blue light. The temperature of the coals is just too low to emit much blue light. Well, there's detectors in our eye that were discovered, and they're not visual. They don't provide an image, but they do detect light. And they're sensitive to the blue part of the spectrum. And this is curious, why the blue part of the spectrum? Well, think back as a hunter-gatherer, you want to stay alert throughout twilight because that's when the, the predators of the day and the predators of the night overlap. So it's a particularly dangerous time of day. And so you need to stay alert. And these, these detectors detected the blue light of the sky. And they, they kept, as long as it detected the blue light of the sky, it kept them alert. They inhibited sleeping to a certain degree. So it lo locks in the circadian rhythm. And it locks in, and when they, when they fall beneath, when the light falls beneath their threshold, then that locks in the circadian rhythm that does all kinds of things I'll, I'll mention. So these detectors, the, the spectral sensitivity or the, the color sensitivity is based upon the blue light of the night sky or the twilight, the blue light of twilight. Well, if you have artificial light around that emits that light, you're going to your body is going to feel it's in perpetual twilight. Now, mm. these these uh, light detectors they enable the flow of a number of a whole suite of hormones, 
So there's a lot of repair damage that occurs in the daytime, and that has to be repaired so that you can survive the next day. And these these repairs, uh, or your body needs to be rejuvenated, and that rejuvenation occurs at night. And so when the twilight falls beneath the threshold of these non-visual cells, we'll call them twilight detectors, then the, that enables the flow of melatonin that puts you to sleep, and the melatonin enables the flow of other this other suite of hormones that go about your body to repair it. Well, if you have perpetual twilight, the melatonin and these other hormones don't get released, or at least they just trickle out into your blood. Hmm. So if you have twilight throughout the night that comes from uh, white white street lights and door lights and and the lights from your uh, personal uh, communication devices and so on, then that inhibits the flow of these hormones. And even though you may sleep, you don't get the full benefit of sleep. And wow. so what do we find? We find that um, human health, the natural health of humans is decreasing over time. And surprisingly, some of the things that go uncontrolled are obesity, diabetes, cancer, um, stress, anxiety. All these things can be linked back to artificial light at night. This isn't, doesn't say that artificial light causes these things, but rather it prevents the body from uh, from repairing itself and coping with them. Wow, that's very interesting. Um, I didn't realize there was a, a strong connection there, but that's that's pretty cool. So I think you know we've established that there's potentially some health issues, some environmental issues, some ecological issues with this artificial light at night, and that's as an astronomer, I, I'm going, yay, let's get rid of it. But obviously, people feel um, protected with this light. And as I said, there's this security factor. Are there, are there solutions to coexist with, with people's need for the feeling of security and protecting the environment at night so that we can look at galaxies? Well, I think this is where scotobiology came in because, because the human, humans are diurnal. They're not very good at night, but we have a social imperative it seems our cultural imperative to extend our activity into the night but as diurnal creatures we don't see all that well at night now amateur astronomers and professional astronomers know that they can because we we do it we can walk across a farmer's field uh under starlight we need very very little light to to see and indeed all humans do but if you live in a city your eyes are never dark adapted so you never experience how well you can see at night. Now, dark adaptation, that's when your, your iris opens up to its maximum and lets in the most light? Yes, there's, uh, there's actually two types of, uh, well, I mentioned th uh, this non-visual um, set of detectors, but there are two other ones that, that support our, our vision. Um, in the daytime, it's very bright. We have um, cells that resemble the shape of cones, and there's three three types of them and this gives us our color vision they're very they're not very sensitive to light but they see very fine detail so we've got this the cone cells in the daytime but they're not sensitive enough to see at night and yet it's critical as a, as a species that we see at night at least as hunter-gatherers so millions of years ago uh, the the eyes uh, of mammals also developed another type of receptor in fact they evolved from the cones to uh to that were very very sensitive and these are they are rod shaped and there's about um 10 of them that get grouped together in a neural network in the back of your eye 
and they're extremely sensitive, but they don't see color. So you end up seeing, use these at night. Now these, uh, these, these rod cells are very easily bleached by light. They don't, and they take a while to recover. Oh. And you can, uh, experience this when you, you, you go to take out the garbage or so. You, you go from the, the Brighty Lake kitchen out to the dark. And what you end up seeing is nothing. And, but if you linger a bit of time, outside you'll notice you start seeing more and more and this is the recovery of your night vision the the, the night vision cells these cone, these rod cells become more and more sensitive as they as a uh, the bleached portion of them the, the bleachness of them uh, recovers and they being begin to see again so you, after about 10 minutes you can see reasonably well but if you really want to see a faint galaxy in a telescope, you might need 30 minutes to an hour. In fact, you're, there's improvements after three hours. Your vision is still improving. And so in cities, you're never using these? Never using these, and most people are oblivious to them. Uh, back in the day, um, for most of us that have white hair, probably remember the Moody Blues. And on the, one of their albums, Days of Future Past, there's a, um, there's a bit of a poem they recite, and it was written by one of the members who was actually a member of the British Astronomical Association, and it goes, it's talking about the moon, but uh, it's cold-hearted orb that rules the night, removes the colors from our sight. Red is gray and yellow white, but we determine which is right and which is an illusion. And this is a direct reference to being dark adapted, because huh. when you're dark adapted, you see, but you don't see color. So getting back to the question, what solutions exist to 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 share the night sky and get back to the sort of darkness that we like so when we went when we looked at the scotobiology side it was evident that there's a tolerance to the brightness of light uh, the extent of the light the spectrum of the light and also when the light occurs and these are were written up and documented into the Canadian guidelines for outdoor lighting that were written and adopted by Parks Canada, or sorry, written by myself, and were adopted by Parks Canada in 2008, and now form the lighting protocol for Canadian dark sky preserves. And also, uh, they're offered as guidance for the International Dark Sky Association and other groups around the world. And so... If you look critically at these, these attributes of light that, that life, uh, that animals and, and even human health, through human health, humans can, can tolerate, you can have light. It's almost like having your cake and eat it too. Because if you abide by the shielding, the, the color and so on, then you can actually have a remarkable amount of light. You can actually read. And that's about the most extreme requirement for lighting, you should at least be able to read, read instructions, read a map. And if you can do that, then really at night, you don't need much more light than that. And so when we put these guidelines together, we then compared them to some of the uh, the Illumination Engineering Society of North America, their, their guidelines uh, for, for street lighting and so on. And they're not that far off. Really? Which, is, which really surprised me. However, and there's always a caveat here, um, those guidelines just talk about light. They don't talk about the shielding, they don't talk about the color, and they don't talk about the duration or the, the scheduling of the light. So what do you mean by well, shielding? If, 
Shielding in terms of to limit the extent of the light. If you don't have a shield on a light, that light can be seen for literally as far as the eye can see. And that disrupts the environment, it disrupts the navigation of animals, especially birds. And yet it's providing no illumination whatsoever. Because uh, you hold up a light a kilometer, uh, a piece of paper a kilometer from a light, uh, you can't read anything on that piece of paper. It's better to, to limit it to, to only where you want it. For example, on the road or on your property. So, so yeah, my, by, my understanding of shielding is that you want to keep any light from going out horizontally or above horizontal where it can where it will end up going up and lighting up clouds and lighting up the sky. You basically, the light is only useful on the ground for, for what we want it for, right? Yes, but the, the, the way it's expressed by the Illumination Engineering Society is that they characterize one type of shielding as full cutoff. And that limits, there's no, uh, limits the light so there's no uplight. And it limits the light that's just below the horizon to about 10% the, the output of the lamp. Okay. And so that's actually pretty good compared to what we used to have. We used to have the, the Cobra lights that had that drop glass. And then they evolved into newer products that had a flat glass, kind of looked like a Cobra light on, on a diet. Street lighting? Street lighting, that's right. But that one, that ten percent of the light shining out horizontally or just below the horizon can literally shine for hundreds and hundreds of meters. Mm-hmm. And that is, and so when you look around, you look down a street that uh, has even full cutoff lighting, you still see the bright glare from the uh, the uh, just of the window of the light, the the street light. And that is affecting your vision. That's causing, your, in some cases, your iris to stop down so that you let less light, light into your eye. And that sounds counterproductive. Um, so you want to limit it as much as possible. So the shielding is important. And there's a more aggressive shielding called sharp cutoff shielding that reduces that light in the horizon, um, just below the horizon, to only 1%. So there's, there's ways you can handle this. But their, the IESNA, their, their guidelines, RP8 they're called, uh, limit only the illumination of the ground and also the luminance of the light, how much light, uh, uh, comes, out, how much light comes out of the, the light fixture. So if you are more careful about the shielding, and then also if you're careful about the color of the light, because blue light is... Um, it provides our impression of glare mm-hmm. by about five to ten times more than an amber light would. That's why white LED lights look so much more glaring than the old-fashioned high-pressure sodium. Even though the old high-pressure sodium um, optics were very poor, there were uh, the shielding was harder to do with those lamps. So by removing the blue light and providing better shielding, and then only using the light when there's a lot of humans around, uh, you can actually reduce the amount of uh, impact on the environment considerably. And also by removing the glare that comes from poor shielding or limited shielding, um, you can now use much fainter lights as well. You don't, They don't have to be as bright. And not as bright translates into saving energy. That's actually a good point because the... The lights are are so bright around us that you can't. That it seems like uh, businesses are competing to be brighter than their neighbors. <laughs> That's right, and it's uh, and also they become very dynamic. Their one reason for having the light along streets as bright as they are is to is for safety. 
And yet, if uh, and so they want to have the illumination level into your daytime range because your those daytime cone cells react uh, respond more more quickly than your nighttime rod cells. However, uh, and this is a matter of uh, the rod cells might respond every uh, sorry respond in the order of about uh, half a second, whereas your cone cells respond uh, in less than a quarter second. So that's significant for, for drivers. However, the distractions on the side of the road increase your reaction time to over two seconds. Hmm. So really, the illumination level is has no effect. It's all to do with distraction on the side of the road. And that's, of course, what is part of uh, retail marketing. you got to have the flashing mm -hmm. dynamic lights and in-your-face advertising on the side of the road. I definitely that's find those white LEDs very distracting. I mean, they, they, at night, they, they hurt my eyes. We have these, our, our municipality in, installed uh, white LED streetlights, and just the glare for them seems to almost hurt my eyes. They do. And it's uh, that's because your iris is stopping down. If it stops down... To, I don't know if the right word is vigorously, but it causes pain. So in some cases, that physical pain is a stopping down of your iris, of limiting the light that goes into your eye, which again is counterproductive because you want, it's nighttime, you're supposed to let the light in your eye. Well, that stuff stops it down. So you've made a lot of recommendations here for, for nighttime lighting. You've talked about uh, cutting off the, the up light. You've talked about uh, limiting the blue content of the light and having more of an amber and also decreasing the intensity of the light. Oh, and you've also talked about um, not using it when there's not people around. So it seems like there's a lot of complex things out there uh, to do to make things better. How can ordinary folks help delight the night? Well, you know, it, th this seems like a lot to an, an ordinary person with a, with a house with their outdoor lights. What can we do? Yeah, the the, comp the the complexity comes in understanding why, but use as little as possible. Uh, don't put up the, you know, the the maximum brightness light because it was cheap, uh, but put in the, the the maybe the intermediate or the even the lowest wattage light, and if you don't have glare around, especially in the urban uh, sorry the rural areas, if there's no other lights around, you can get by with. Uh, even the lowest wattage light for a door for a door light is probably going to be too bright. Hmm. So um, buy bug lights. The bug lights are amber. Um, they don't attract mosquitoes, which is good. You don't want to introduce, uh, let people enter your house, and when they come in, a cloud of mosquitoes come into your house. So hmm. use a bug light. And what you'll find is the bug lights are nowhere near as glaring as the as modern white lights and they also don't track the mosquitoes when i when uh, i go into the hardware store and look at lights they have these these color temperatures on them now as a physicist i know this this represents their black body body temperature but there's like you know 5000k 4000k 3000k uh is there something that is recommended in that spectrum this is a good point because as we learn more about lights and the technology evolves, 10 years ago, you couldn't get 4,000K lights. Uh, now they're falling off the shelves. But now we also know that 4,000K emit far too much blue light. In fact, mm. uh, 5 to 10 years ago, the International Dark Sky Association was recommending 3K, which is white. Uh, but there's less blue light in it. 
But now you can get 2700K, 2500K, and if you get 2200K, that's getting pretty close to bug lights. And this is the sign of the warm, the warm light, you know, the it's dim a, It's even flame. beyond warm. It, so what you want to be, what you want to get from the uh, hardware store is 2200K or less, wow, and that okay. emits between about five and one percent blue light. And yet, if you get a 2200K uh, it looks like candlelight. I mean, there's nothing wrong with candlelight. It's rather nice. And it's also better for your eyes. It doesn't attract bugs as much. And on top of that, if you put up a door light, make sure it's shielded so it doesn't shine into the eyes of people walking by your house or um, motors driving along the street. If you shield it, it's illuminating your doorstep, your door, and so on, the pathway up to the door. It's not shining in their eyes. That's going to inhibit that visibility. I, I think also, the full cutoff lights look look better too on a house. I think so. That uh, that the it makes the the that area glow more. The surface glow. I know most of these new housing uh, expansions that you see have all these uh, fancy coach lamps at the end of the driveways, which are basically glaring right into your eyes. Is there? A better option for for outdoor lighting that's not these these glary coach lights. It comes with the design of the coach lights. Now there's some municipalities that don't allow lights along the curb, and that's because motors can't see past that light. So you can have a dog, you could have a ball, you could have a a raccoon crossing the street beyond that coach light, and the motors won't see it, or at least they'll be. They'll be distracted by the light rather than by the animal or the, the hazard that's in the road. So that that's, teaches us something. Some municipalities say you shall not have co- uh, curbside lighting. However, there's a, a neighbor of mine out in the country. He had coach lights. And I what I ended up doing was I extend. There's two halves to it. that The top half would fold off so you can change the light bulb. And so I put shields, metal shields, on the top half, and I use one of these uh, fittings you can get from Canadian Tire that ex- shifts the light bulb higher. And that moved it from the lower half of the cavity to the upper half. So no light shone. Ab- so essentially it was full cut- better than full cutoff light. And mm-hmm. the, the metal I was using was reflecting light down, and it illuminated the entrance to his laneway better. And so there are modifications to do, but there are indeed some uh, lights that are designed to be far better than the uh, uh, unshielded lighting. But you have to look for them. And unfortunately, they they tend they used to be the premium lights. Now they're much more common because of the the uh, people know more about the impact of light pollution. If you buy a light from a hardware store, it probably isn't full cut off. If it is, good. If not, then you have to do something to shield it. Now, fortunately, CFL lights, compact fluorescent lights, and LED lights, they tend to be very cool, relatively cool, especially compared to an incandescent bulb. And you can literally make a shade out of a piece of cardboard, paint it with some outdoor, durable outdoor paint, and that'll last five years. And it's a great project for your kids or grandkids. Very interesting. And, uh, and again, on my website, there's, uh, or, or one of my websites, but if somebody emailed me, I can send them the drawing on how to make it. Okay, that's very cool. Um, so I have one one last question. Um, as an Allen, I'm 
a little bit concerned at how uh, Artificial Light at Night is being portrayed as Alan. Uh, were you <laughs> responsible for coining this acronym? Um, I think I might have been. Um, <laughs> it used to be called Artificial... No, they used to be called Ar Light at Night, L-A-N. And I said, well, it's Artificial Light at Night. Then the U.S. Park Service got wind of that, and it's and some of their consultants and uh they rightly pointed out that there's no such thing as artificial light light is light <laughs> so i'd eat crow and so they came up with a term and i use it now uh, artificial and in brackets anthropogenic <laughs> it's a long ah. word but hey it's it's got it's got it's got some meat behind it so it's actually it's anthropog anthropogenic light at night but yes, I conned it. And, and also it's, it raises eyebrows because say, what's this, who's Alan? And, but <laughs> in principle, it should be pronounced A-L-A-N. But, uh, but anyway, that's the way it is. There's another something that uh, people can do when it comes to um, reducing light pollution. Uh, we've talked about using the lowest wattage, uh, avoid white lights. In fact, there's a color filter. If you do have white lights and gosh, you just bought them last week and you don't want to replace them. There's a color filter that you can get, and it's really cheap in terms of inexpensive. And some uh, photographers out there are aware of this company. They're bhphotovideo.com, and it's an American um, uh, photographic video store. And they sell products from um, a company called Roscoe. And the, it's a Roscoe, uh, the product is Roscoe Lux. And it's okay. number 15 deep straw. And these things, it's you get two square feet for about, I think, uh, $7 US. I mean, it's an enormous amount. And you put one sheet, one piece of this uh, inside your light, and suddenly you got amber light. Ah, very interesting. And it's very cheap. Uh, it's not terribly durable, so it's got to be protected. And maybe you have to get some pieces of clear plastic and sandwich it between the clear plastic. But generally... If you got, uh, if you, the light fixture you have has a bit of a window in it, then just put it on top of the window between the window and the lamp, and you're good. And if it can't take high temperature, so it doesn't work with incandescent lights, but it'll work fine with CFL and LEDs. That's the cheapest way to go. And mm. it also, well, gives you a sense of satisfaction when you turn something that's bad for the environment into something that's good for the environment. Yeah, that's uh, really the good. shielding is we we've talked about, and the other part is to turn the lights off at night. It, if you look at the traffic records um, and use the traffic records as a proxy for human activity, then two hours after sunset is a pretty good time when the light should be turned off. And with that in mind, the um, in the Two hours after sunset or 10.30, something like that. Uh, that's a pretty good time when you can start turning your lights off or dimming them down. Program them to dim them down. Because the, the animals can accommodate that somewhat. Uh, ideally, as soon as you go into your house, if you no, don't expect visitors and you don't expect to go out again, turn the lights off anyway. It's a great uh, idea. Animals use, animals use anonymity for safety and security. And so why don't we? That sounds like a very good advice. Turn off your lights, use motion sensors uh, if you don't want to turn them off, and let's protect the night sky. You're going to be sleeping and uh, your property's on display. If you do use motion detectors, 
then uh, the fact that the lights pop on, that's a pretty good visual alarm for yourself. If you leave your blinds open, you'll see the lights pop on around your house and your neighbors might as well. Indeed. Okay, well, I think uh, that's bringing us to the end of our, our time slot here. So uh, I'd like to thank you very much again for, for joining me here on The Rational View, Rob. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Alan. All right, this is uh, Artificial Light at Night signing off. Please tune in again next week. I'm working on a couple new episodes. One is going to be a, an interview with a radiation expert that I'd hope to have this week. And the other one I'm working on is GMOs and organic food and the food supply monopoly. So thank you for listening. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page and becoming a patron of this podcast at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view.